Welcome to the Innovations in Anti-Aging Living Show with Dr. Ann Trong. Here's where we'll explore how to live your best life with stem cells. Listen in to hear key opinion leaders, mentors, motivators, and other guests discuss about stem cells innovations. Stem cells will redefine medicine. This show will lead you to slow down aging and thrive to live the life you've always wanted to live. Hosted by Dr. Ann Trong, the international best-selling author of Erectile Dysfunction Fix Using PRP to Treat ED. And she has been recognized as Entrepreneur of the Year. This podcast is sponsored by the Trong Rehabilitation Center. Visit Dr. Ann Trong at trongrehab.com. That's T-R-U-O-N-G rehab.com. Or call her today at 540-374-3164. That's 540-374-3164. Today, I have the honor of interviewing Dr. Brian Scheipel, and he's always been my hero. He's always somebody I've looked up to since I started doing regenerative medicine. And I'm honored that he takes his time away to spend some time with me today. And I'm going to do his introduction and hopefully I'll get through it because I'm going to get so tongue-tied with all his accomplishments. Dr. Scheipel is a recognized leader of ultrasound-guided autologous stem cell, PRP, and prolotherapy injection work in the Philadelphia area and nationally. He is now in private practice for more than 10 years after completing 13 years as a division of chief of sports medicine and director and founder of sports medicine fellowship program at Crozier Keystone Health System in 1995. He is involved in clinical research and is an active member of various national sports medicine and orthopedic organizations. He teaches ultrasound-guided PRP and prolotherapy injection technique and is nationally and internationally through the Hackett-Hemwall Foundation from the University of Wisconsin and for the American Association of Orthopedic Medicine, which he served as the president-elect for the AOM. His clinical interests include ultrasound-guided autologous stem cell, platelet-rich plasma, prolotherapy injection, non-surgical release of nerve entrapment, non-operative treatment of acute and chronic tendon and ligament injury, non-surgical care of arthritis, fluoroscopic C-arm-guided interventional spine injections, including cell-based treatment for intervertebral disc injuries and herniation, as well as musculoskeletal diagnostic ultrasound. He has served as a team physician to several local school districts, was the founding medical director of the Philadelphia Triathlon at Fairmount Park, was the chief medical officer of the Pennsylvania State Games from 1994 to 2006, and was a volunteer for the team physician at the USOC in Colorado Springs in 2003. He has authored several scientific articles, including book chapters and research projects, He's lectured locally and nationally and appeared on ESPN. He was recognized as one of Philly Magazine top doctors in 2003 and was featured on PBS for his regenerative injection work during the summer of 2013 for the popular American Milestone series. He wrote a book for the lay public in the new treatment paradigm of regenerative injection work called Regenerative Healing for Life, published during the summer of 2013. He helped publish a scientific paper on a new nomenclature system for research with PRP in the Pimanar Journal in 2015. 
Dr. Scheibel has been using ontologous stem cell injection to treat advanced arthritis in sports medicine since 2010 and is a founding board member of the International Cellular Medicine Society. He became the second Regenix stem cell injection affiliate in the U.S. during the end of 2011. He left Regenix Network at the end of 2015 to pursue all to sue all that the new field of interventional regenerative orthopedic medicine has to offer, or IROM. He believes the future of our specialty is to use advanced regenerative orthobiologic cell-based treatment with minimally invasive technique in the new specialty called interventional regenerative orthopedic medicine, or IROM. Dr. Scheipel has become board members and medical directors of ALLOVI, a placenta tissue company, and RenewV, a regenerative medicine physician network, as well as a board member of Integrated Genetic Solutions, IGS, a medical laboratory testing company. He's also getting ready to take over the board of directors for the AOM as his next president as well. He was recently invited to be part of the educational committee for the Interventional Orthopedic Foundation to help shape the future educational offering of the prestigious stem cell regenerative medicine organization. He presented a lecture topic on integrating regenerative medicine and orthopedic surgery at the Interventional Cartilage Restoration Society in San Diego. He also was invited to lecture on the science of placenta tissue application in sports medicine at the annual AMSSM Inaugural Regenerative Medicine Workshop. Wow, what an accomplishment. My uh, biography is probably one-tenth of that. So, <laughs> so thank you for being here with me. What I'd like to dive into is who is Dr. Scheipel? What was his background like and how did he get to be where he's at? I didn't know I was going to be a doctor uh, when I was in my youth. I was the middle child of a family of six kids. I was very painfully shy. We moved around a lot. My dad was a, was an oil company engineer and we moved every two to four years. By the time I got into high school, I did not want to go to the private high school that my parents put me to. And I kind of didn't fit in at first, but I met some, uh, like-minded guys on the high school football team and we became good friends and I ended up really valuing my high school experience there. And that kind of set the stage for later accomplishments. I started my undergraduate career at Georgia Tech, with, and my dad was a Korean War vet, and uh, he never finished college uh, before going into the Army. And so we started Georgia Tech at the same time. And the joke in my family was uh, engineering was too hard, so I quit and went to pre-med and medical school. So you were an engineering major um, I was, in college? I was for two years, and then I switched to uh, biology. My college career path was, was kind of rocky. I uh, took two years off and studied acting in New York. After getting an offer from, a, from a, uh, an acting coach that I, was, I met while waiting tables in Fort Lauderdale, and that led to a two-year sidetrack, and uh, I was not meant to be an actor. I arrived in New York City to study acting during the beginning of the Actors' Union strike of 1980. I left New York City two years later and went back to school. My goal was to possibly uh, get involved in medicine after my brother 
was in a, a serious car accident and was uh, comatose for a couple of weeks and coded and and uh, came home to recuperate with us for a year. And so during my back to school resurgence, I went with my brother to a lot of doctor's appointments and whatnot and saw him kind of come back from the dead. And that experience kind of galvanized my desire to uh, go into medicine at some in some capacity. So I, I actually wanted to be a chiropractor at first because I had some chiropractic friends in, in uh, Atlanta when I was at Georgia Tech. That was very interesting to me. I spoke to my pre-med advisor at undergraduate school, and he recommended that I look into osteopathic medicine, which I never heard of. And his wife was a DO in, in town, and he invited me to have lunch with her, and I did, and I applied only to DO schools after that and gave up the idea of becoming a chiropractor, and the rest is history. I was surprised you were an actor. So what made you want to take that leap when you were two uh, two years in college? Yeah. All of a sudden, you're like, I'm going to New York to be an actor. What what happened there? It was one of those confidence things. It was one of those opportunities that I had no idea was going to be thrust upon me. The acting coach was, was actually affiliated with the New York Yankees, and I was waiting on their table on a weekly basis. <laughs> the ownership of the Yankees came into our restaurant once a week, and I got to know this. He was actually the team priest who was the acting coach. And he's, he's, I, don't, I don't think he's alive anymore, but he was a famous acting coach for ball players that uh, transitioned from professional sports to in, into acting, and he had a direct connection with a famous acting school in New York City, that was it was called the Actors Studio, and in order to get in the Actors Studio, you had to have you had to have an invitation to to uh, audition. I had my audition and whatnot through him, and that that's what led me to go to New York. And the problem in in New York to be a a, a brand new actor with no experience moving up to New York City, you're competing against polished actors. And when I would go into auditions, they'd be like, where where have you done your your summer theater? Where have you where did you get your undergraduate degree in in drama and whatnot? And I didn't. And so I was always competing with accomplished actors, and I was a newbie. So with with that plus the the actors union strike going on, there was even the accomplished actors were not getting work. So at the end of like a year and a half, I saw this as a a dead end and, and wanted to kind of end that chapter and, and go back to school and get my degree. Did you get any jobs, any I acting did, job I on, did. on I got Broadway? Some, yeah, ec- extra things mostly, um, commercials. I was in a couple of movies just as an extra, you know, just really nothing. But uh, uh-huh. yeah, but it was, it was a good experience. It really did teach me self-reliance and the ability to memorize. You had to memorize your lines, which I needed in medical school. So a lot of those skills transferred over to other life skills that I needed to be successful in the next pathway that I took. So when you up in New York, you self-supported yourself? Yes. Yeah. It was in, a, in an apartment in the Lower East Side uh-huh. near Alphabet City. And, and then I, I moved to uh, Chelsea. And I still love New York City to this day. I would take my family there a few times a year. My daughter lives in Brooklyn. Uh-huh. She, she works in Manhattan. So we, we get up to 
New York City quite often. All right. Well, I will never let that down that you're an actor. So anytime <laughs> we need we need to role play, I know That's who right. to call them, That's right. right? That's right. So I went back to, to school, finished undergrad, and then applied to DO school. Yes. And, and, and ended up in New York uh, Osteopathic College, New York College of Osteopathic Medicine. And, and I was the uh, token Florida boy in my class. And uh was was a very interesting experience being with the the class was very homogenous everyone was from long island in our class of 140 students met some great friends and and had a had a, a great experience at that school and then went to do my clinical rotations and had the opportunity to get into a lottery to try to uh, get to other hospital experiences outside of New York, and I got my first pick and ended up in Philadelphia. And that's where I met my wife and ended up doing my internship, residency, and fellowship in the, in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania. Okay, so what happened after physical medicine rehab residency? So I did not do PM&R. I was ah. in medical school. I was voted most likely to be a successful PM&R doc. <laughs> In some like, you know, end of graduation thing. And I knew I wanted to do sports medicine, even in the first day of medical school at the at the water fountain, talking to some of my my new classmates. There were like three of us that said we wanted to do sports medicine and all three of us are sports med docs. And but I didn't know how to get there. And so back then, PM&R wasn't a pathway to get into sports medicine back when I was a medical student. What year was that? That was eighty. That was 1985. So I was applying for residencies in 88. The most accomplished way and standard way to get into sports medicine, non-operative sports medicine, was through primary care specialties like, like family medicine. Um, so I had no idea how to do that. So I did an osteopathic rotating internship in, in Philadelphia and the suburbs. And I ended up doing a rotation at a local hospital with an ER doc who was a former Olympian and had his own private sports medicine practice in the basement of the hospital. And he and I hit it off and he recommended that I apply to family medicine residency programs to get into sports medicine fellowship. And I said, yeah, but I want to do ER medicine. And he said, well, you can get into sports medicine through ER but it's, it's a more traditional pathway to go through family medicine. So I applied to both. ER, ER and family, and family medicine. And I was already moonlighting in ERs. I had a wife and a child at home, and, and uh, we I needed extra money. So I moonlit in ERs, and I loved ER medicine. I actually did ER in one. I did moonlighting in one ER for 20 years. So I was very skilled at taking care of emergencies. And when I did my family medicine residency in Wilmington, Delaware, and I, I then did my fellowship at Penn State, I ended up working with uh, my, my fellowship director, who was in charge of the, of the Pennsylvania State Games, and we had set up a medical command center that was like a mini ER, it was like a mini MASH unit with uh, 5,000 athletes uh, we took care of over five days. And so we took, we sewed people up, set fractures, we had x-ray in there, we were we, we were like a mini ER. So my ER skills really transferred over to taking care of conditions and, and patients that we wouldn't traditionally take care of in the field. I was very comfortable doing that uh, because of my ER skills. So you said that you worked for ER for 20 years? Yes. So even though you were in practice and you were doing family practice, you're right. still moonlighting? Yes. 
One day a week? One or? day a week, yeah. One shift a week. I had the Friday night shift from midnight to eight. Why? Why did you do that? I, it was A, for extra money. I had kids in private school or whatnot. But B, I loved it. I, I really enjoyed the ER. And uh, when I ended up going into private practice after ac- academics, that's when I gave up the ER because I needed to devote 100% of my time into building my private practice. Okay, so did a family practice and then sports medicine and fellowship? sports medicine at Penn State. Is that right? So when did you start getting into regenerative medicine and prolotherapy? So I saw regenerative medicine coming. I heard about prolotherapy at a sports medicine conference for the first time. It was actually an interesting story. It was one of our famous stalwart teachers, uh, Tom Raven, was supposed to give our uh, sports medicine lecture at our sports medicine meeting. And I had never heard of prolotherapy at that point. I'd seen a couple of articles and I kind of glanced over them, but didn't understand the impact. And we had a room full of like four or 500 doctors and Tom Raven was supposed to give a prolotherapy talk and he couldn't make it. And he sent someone from the Hackett Hemwell Foundation instead and Mark Timmerman was the one that gave the talk in, in his place, and he did a fantastic job, and that, that kind of piqued my interest. But I really didn't know how it was going to be useful in a sports medicine practice after hearing Mark do his talk. And the, the interesting thing was the talk before Mark's was a famous founder of, of AMSSM gave a talk on his sports medicine experience covering wheelchair cyclists that raced from they raced around the world and he was the head team physician to cover this event when he gave his speech you could hear a pin drop and at the end of the prolotherapy talk which was right after that you could hear a pin drop because there's no one in the room <laughs> except me and a few other people like no one had any interest in it so at but it, it interested me because I was looking for another way to treat my patients that were failing with the standard care that we were able and trained to do in sports medicine, which was a steroid shot, physical therapy, a brace, some rest, and send them to surgery. And I practiced in my sports medicine practice in our hospital. My practice was right across the hall from a 200,000 square foot health club that was connected to our hospital. And we had 7,000 members, and many of them were tennis players. So I took care of hundreds of cases of tennis elbow per year. And we did literally, these patients, some of these patients got three, four, five injections of steroids into their lateral epicondyle. And the more we did, the worse they got. My patients were begging me to figure out a way to fix them because they had all these chronic tennis elbow patients. And they would get surgery, and they would come back and say, that didn't work. What else you got? So I was searching for a way to help my patients get better that was out of the box because what I was trained to do wasn't working. When I heard that prolotherapy talk, it piqued my interest, but I really didn't make the connection until I went to another sports medicine conference and the doctor presented his university athlete who injured his ankle and was unable to compete hardly at all that first year after his ankle injury was a sophomore and they did prolotherapy on him in the in the off season after his sophomore year 
he rushed for 2,000 yards his junior and senior year and won the Heisman Trophy and had a successful career in the NFL after that. And his ankle never bothered him again. Who was that athlete? I forget the name, but it, he was he went to the University of Toledo and, and uh, Gunnar Brolinson and, and Roger Cruz were the fellowship directors there. And one of the fellows presented that. And that's when I clicked. I said, that's it. That's what I need to learn how to do. And I went and got training. I met some I met Paul Tortland at that first meeting. And uh, was that through the Hackenhamwell Foundation? It was not. That was through the AAO, the American Academy of Osteopathy. And they had it. They had uh, two courses a year at, in Bitterford, Maine, at the osteopathic school in prolotherapy. It was run by Tom Raven and Mark Cantieri and um, George Pasquale. And they did a great job. They, what was AOM at that time? What? They, it, AOM was was training people in prolotherapy, but I had no idea who they were at that time. I wasn't I wasn't in their world yet. Hmm. I was I was in the MD sports medicine world at that time, and I I left the MD sports medicine world to to take this alternative pathway to learn how to do prolotherapy. So I brought that back to my office and started treating tennis elbow and high school athletes with prolotherapy and actually my own body. I was, I had been in a few car accidents and I was starting to, to really have a broken body. And I was not, I was actually looking at my disability um, insurance paperwork on going on full disability. Cause I was so beat up. When was that? That was um, in the late nineties, 97, 98. And after hearing the prolotherapy talk, and hearing the sports medicine talk on prolotherapy and starting to do it on my patients, I actually called Paul Tortland and asked him to treat me. And so with my little brand new daughter in the, in the van and my wife and I, we drove up to Connecticut and got treated by him. And he treated my knee and my back and my elbow and my shoulder. And he, he did like six body parts. And uh, he, I think he did two or three treatments over the course of the next six months. And I was like 90% better and never looked back. I haven't, I haven't had any of those kind of disabling injuries ever since. So tell us about that. So, and, and I know that a lot of our listeners have chronic pain too from car accident. What, what type of pain did you have and how did you feel so that was it I, a career ending for you? I was heading that way before starting, before trying prolotherapy. And I knew because of my practice and my patient's experience that's, Surgery was not that successful with the injuries that I had. I had chronic rotator cuff injuries. I had uh, my old, had a football injury in high school with an ACL. At in my late 30s, my I started to develop bone on bone arthritis, um, so my knee hurt all the time. I had uh, tennis elbow and both elbows. I'm an osteopathic physician, so I do. I still to this day at 60 years old do. I practice OMT on my patients every day. And that beats your body up over time. Any if you take care of chiropractors and DOs that that do manipulation, their their bodies give out at a certain point, mm-hmm. and, and they become patients of ours. So we can try to help keep them together. Um, and I was I was no different. And without prolotherapy, there's no way I would have I would have disa- I would have been disabled and had to leave medicine. So were you a patient of prolotherapy first before you started doing no, prolotherapy? No, I, start, I started doing prolo and saw how it was working in my patients, and that's when I called uh, Dr. Torland. And I credit him in my book that I wrote, the first chapter, I go kind of go over my story, and I credit Paul for saving my career. 
that early prolotherapy experience, being able to offer that to my patients in an MD hospital, prolotherapy was not covered. I had to, as a as a administrator of my practice and administrator of the hospital, I had to work with legal and compliance and the vice presidents of the hospitals in order to get prolotherapy as an offered service to my patients, who we had to take care of all patients that came in, regardless of their ability to pay. And so we developed this this way of getting prolotherapy covered, and it took about two years to get it passed through our hospital, but eventually we did. Wow. And I we had we had over seven thousand employees and we were self insured and I was able to give those employees prolotherapy that was covered for for 13 years. So that was really kind of like your, the first regenerative therapy it that's was. covered by insurance it was. at that time. In the, in the Philadelphia area, it absolutely was. And and I still take care of some of those patients today. That's now almost 20 years later. And, you know, they, they'll come in and gripe that, remember back in the day when it was covered? Well, now I have to pay you some. So now it's not covered anymore not, under, uh, that, under the employer well, system? I, I left I left that hospital system and went into private practice. And the, the guys that took over my fellowship practice are still offering uh, prolotherapy to the to the um, actually, no, they had to give it up uh, because the hospital was sold and they had to go to like a you know, a third party payer instead of being self-insured. So they were under the same rules that everybody else was in the community with like Keystone or something like that, with it's not a covered service anymore. So when we were self-insured, we were able to carve that out and get it covered. That was a good time for prolotherapy in the Philadelphia area where, where at least our patients were able to get our employees were able to get it, get it covered. And so then I saw, I saw where prolotherapy was great. And I saw PRP kind of coming down the tracks and how that regenerative medicine field was starting to really not explode, but it was, it was starting. Ultrasound was starting. I was having problems getting ultrasound in our practice because radiology blocked us. It was turf wars between surgery and radiology and non-operative sports medicine. So I languished in my fellowship practice for a year or two before I saw the writing on the wall that that this big organization was not going to change because I wanted them to change. If I had if I wanted in on the full offering of what regenerative medicine had to offer back in the in the uh, mid 2000s, I was going to have to leave academia and go out on my own. And that's what I did. So I left the academic job in 2007. I was I was hired by an orthopedic group after pitching a business plan to work with them and have them refer non-operative patients to me and me refer them surgery patients. And they were going to get me x-ray and ultrasound and have, have me start doing PRP. But none of it happened. They blocked it. At, at One of the three partners believed in, in prolotherapy and PRP, and the other two did not. They were, they were traditional orthopedic surgeons that saw no value in what we were doing. So after a year of, of uh, being blocked and, and not being able to bring those services into that private practice, I've left and went on my own. So you learned polo first and then ultrasound? Then ultrasound. So when I, I went to, our, uh, to my chairman and said, there's diagnostic ultrasound that we can use to guide needles to deliver our treatments more accurately. And the articles were, the early articles were starting to come out saying that 
it was safer, it was less painful, it was easier recovery. All these important uh, points that we now take for granted when we, we use ultrasound in our practices. We had a meeting, my chairman and I had a meeting with the chairman of, of radiology, and I said, we're going to um, bring ultrasound into our sports medicine practice. We're going to train our fellows. They're going to they're going to go out into the community and they're going to, uh, you know, practice a higher standard of care in the community. We're going to be referring these patients back in to for MRIs and X-ray. And it's just going to be this great relationship between radiology and sports medicine. And the chairman of the department said over his dead body, well, your non-operative practice get ultrasounds in your practice. And so that was that was a block in that was early 2000s, 2004. And my chairman said, well, you go get trained. Go ahead and go to the start getting trained in these courses. That's when I started getting trained in 2004. And we started using the hospital's ultrasound uh, with select cases. And then we would go over with the sonographer holding the probe and I would put the needle in. And it was it was uh, the, the technology, the ultrasound machines were very poor back in those days we could barely see anything the ultrasound techs didn't know what they were looking for for me to put a needle into what i was trying to look for so wow. it, it was it was very very early in the ultrasound days wow. and, and then each each year just got better and better so how did you get interest so you went to prp so that was the first <clears> that was the first then. thing that and was where, how did you find out about prp so actually one of our speakers today dr scarpone um, was a friend of mine, and I knew he was doing it, and I called him and asked him, I want to get started in, in offering PRP. And this was during the orthopedic practice when I I had already given my notice, but I had three months to stay. I said, I'm going to start doing this technology in your practice. And I said, you know, if you don't like it, fire me. So I bought an ultrasound machine, brought it in, started billing uh, my own ultrasound, and we got the PRP, I talked to Dr. Scarpone and he said, tell you what, how about if I come down and get a hotel room and I'll show you how to do it? Wow. And what that, year was this? This was 07. Wow. So he came down, stayed at my house and he stayed with me for two days. We did two days of patient care and we get a lot of questions about lidocaine in PRP at our conferences. Just like today, we talked about it. And uh, the first two patients, he said, well, you can't put lidocaine in your PRP. So we did two rotator cuff patients, and both of them were delivered the PRP. This was the first generation Buffy coat, uh, bloody PRP, and put it in under ultrasound guidance into the rotator cuff tears. And both of them went up front to pay their bill, and both of them passed out. One of them cracked their head open. I had to stitch their head up. And so we never, I never did that again. I always added, and I met Dr. Kevy at Harvard, who was the famous PRP expert in the early experience with uh, PRP and musculoskeletal medicine, and he established that you could safely put some lidocaine in your volume of PRP without changing the characteristics of the PRP. So I learned that back in like 2008, and we always added a little bit of lidocaine to our PRP so our patients wouldn't have that painful, serious, painful experience. So that's, that's when it started. Then with less than a year, I met Dr. Mulvaney, uh, who was training with Dr. Tom Clark, and I went to one of Dr. Clark's um, ultrasound seminars and immediately hooked in with his group, became friends with them. They started, I went to one training course and they invited me back as a teacher 
and I taught for Dr. Clark for many years, which raised my level of skill um, tremendously. I think I may have probably even met you because yes. I met Paul Tortland as one of Clark's. Yes, uh, yeah. So I started. Course. That was 2008. Was my first course with Dr. Clark, and uh, and met Sean, and and then Sean came up to my office. And we had Mayo Friedless there, Dr. Jerry Malanga and Jay Bowen. We had about five or six doctors in my office from different states. And Sean showed us how to do bone marrow that day. And, uh, and I went up to Scarpone's office and learned how to do fat that same year. So all these technologies were, were kind of coming to the forefront in regenerative medicine. And everyone was sharing their, their knowledge freely. And uh, we all, you know, we're all very good friends. That was around 2008, yeah, 2009? Yeah, 2008, yeah. And that's, so that's when we were really practicing, starting to practice and experiment on our patients with the full complement of, of regenerative medicine with autologous cells, with PRP, um, fat, and bone marrow. So that leads me to the next question, if our listeners are listening, and if they are interested in getting stem cell therapy and PRP, who would you advise to for them to go see, and what questions should they ask? For instance, in my own community, some of the large orthopedic groups, have they have non-operative docs working with them, working for them, and they are all jumping on the bandwagon and starting to do PRP. And so what our patients will do, our patients are smart and sophisticated, and they will come into our office or call the office and start asking questions and say, I understand Dr. Scheipel's one of the pioneers of this, this work. I've talked to two orthopedic groups in Philadelphia, and they're just starting to do PRP. Um, and they're doing it less expensively than Dr. Scheipel charges more. Why should I go to him? And my staff answers the question and said, who do you want to go to? You want to go to one of the guys that's the pioneers in this? You want to go to someone that's just starting to do it and doesn't have any experience doing it? So we're, we still have that advantage in our community of being that kind of thought leader. And if patients want to go to the best, they generally end up saying no to the guys that are just starting out and coming to us who have more experience. So for the, for the docs that don't have the experience, what you need, what they need to do is try this on their patients or try selling their patients that, hey, look, I'm just starting to learn how to do PRP. And you know, I have good skills to get a needle in your in your joint doing visco supplement injections and whatnot. Let's try a PRP and see how you respond. And I won't charge you, you know, as much as guys like Scheipel are charging. And you have to kind of introduce it to your patients and get their trust and start to build your practice slowly, get out in the community, do talks, meet other doctors, meet physical therapists in your community, and offer them this service and try to build your practice with grassroots and from the ground up. Well, wonderful. So how can our listener and your potential patient get a hold of you, and how do they contact you? Through my website is drscheipel.com. Very simple. It's drscheipel, S-H-I-P-L-E.com, all lowercase, and that has all my has a nice a lot of information on it. Plus, it has how to contact us. It has our um, email page and phone numbers and things like that. So if they if they want to come in for a consult, they just call the practice and arrange the the consult date. And my uh, staff is is very very skilled at uh, 
figuring out what kind of evaluation they need and how much time and and my staff will get them booked in. Well, wonderful. So before we leave, what one advice can you give to our listener on how to live their best life? My advice to my patients, to my friends is take care of yourself. The interesting thing in my practice is some of my patients, I've been taking care of them since they were in high school. And now they're in their late 20s and early 30s. We've seen them go from very healthy athletes to beat up police officers and whatnot, where I'm doing regenerative medicine treatments on them. And the the answer is take care of yourself, eat right, get plenty of rest. And when you are injured, research these non-operative treatment options, because I think they're safe. I think they're effective. By avoiding surgery, by avoiding dangerous drugs, we're able to get our bodies back into good shape and continue doing what we love to do. And I'm a perfect example of that with my beat up body in my 40s and I'm 60 now. And I feel I feel as as good as I have in 25 years. And you look like it, too. Well, thanks. Well, thank you. All right. And thank you very much. This podcast is sponsored by the Trong Rehabilitation Center. Visit Dr. Ann Trong at TrongRehab.com. That's T-R-U-O-N-G Rehab.com. Or call her today at 540-374-3164. That's 540-374-3164.